Well, good morning, everybody. Last week, we started a new series called The Armor of God, and it's really a spinoff of the previous series. What we did was we're talking about spiritual warfare, and we spent three months really teaching on spiritual warfare to come to an understanding of what it is, how it happens, where it happens, all of the different things like that. And last week, we really began to open up with the principles about the armor. It's crucial that we have an understanding of what this armor is and why we put it on and even how we put it on. And too often, we quickly read through these things and just run through them. Oh, I put on this, I put on that. But we never really take time to think of what this is all about. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the passage that we'll read each and every week in this series as we, we go through it because this is where everything is based out of. This is where Paul really gives us an understanding of what this armor is and how we use it. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Therefore, stand, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints." So last week, we really began to just look at what it talks about there in verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We knew that from the previous series that we talked about. How the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. We're not battling against one another. We're not battling against things that we can see in particular. We're, we're battling against these, these things that it says here. Against the principalities, against powers, against rulers, and against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. These are the things that we're going on. And what I wanted you to see in this is that the way Paul wrote this, and we went back to the Greek a lot, and the reason we do that is sometimes in, in, when it translates into English, it, we don't pick up on the things that is being said or demonstrated there. And so that's part of our problem when we read this is we go through it real quickly and we never really dig into it and say, what exactly is he telling us? But this language is militaristic in nature, that these are ranks of demons, if you will, ranks of, of our spiritual enemy, and they all have different purposes and different powers and different things that they do. And... The keynote in that is what and how they attack. And number one, we, we, we address that the battlefield is most certainly in our minds. Now, there are other things that go into it more than that, no doubt. But, but more importantly, as you and I as an individual, the battlefield that we have to deal with is our mind. And that is why we constantly see in the New Testament where Jesus said it and Paul said it and everybody says it, that we need to, in one way or another, renew our mind, that we take every thought captive. Anything that comes against the knowledge of God, our understanding of who God is, what He said, what He does, we take it captive and we do not allow it to get in there and sink root and begin to mess around with our theology, if you will. And so one of the things that this talked about was how the enemy comes against us as if he's throwing stones or throwing rocks. And it, it, it's the idea of penetration that he keeps throwing and throwing and throwing until finally he breaks through and can get in. 
And that's what he does. We keep constantly having these things come against us, and yet we don't do the things that we should do as is putting the armor of God or putting it on. But what we do is we, we maybe get rid of one thought, but then we allow another one to get in. And then we'll sit there and we'll dwell on that. Something will happen that will throw us off kilter a little bit and we will dwell or replay that event in our mind and just get more angry or whatnot. And so it's not a matter of if the enemy will attack you. He's attacking. It's what we do in response to it. And so what we see here in verse 14, it says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. And this is where we're going to focus today. I always read out of the New King James, but a couple other translations, uh, the New Living would be stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. And then the NASB, it says stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. This is interesting language here, and this actually isn't the first time that Paul mentions a form of the armor. In 1 Thessalonians 5, and verse 8 says this, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now here in Thessalonica, you see it's a very brief description of that armor, and, and it's really probably the understanding that Paul had, but as he goes further, because Thessalonica was written, according to the historians, written prior to the book of Ephesians. As he goes on, he begins to get a better revelation and understanding of this armor that God's given us. By the time he writes it to the Ephesian church, it's very likely as a full understanding of what it is, and that's why he puts it in there the way that he does. And so in verse 14, he says, stand therefore. And this is very interesting how he puts this. The word stand is from the Greek word stenai, S-T-E-N-A-I. I have it up on the screen for you, which means to stand upright. It gives the image of one who is so confident that he is standing with his head held high and his shoulders thrown back. It kind of in our modern terms would be like the guy has swagger. You know what I'm talking about, swagger. A guy just walks in the room and he just owns the room. He's incredibly confident. Incredibly confident. Nothing shakes him. He's not intimidated by the people around him. He's not intimidated by, by uh, meeting famous people, if you will, because he just has swagger. He just exudes this confidence. And we all know somebody like that. It just seems they're confident all the time. Great athletes, in times of when things are getting tough, the best athletes who have this uh, swagger, if you will, really just don't, they don't fold underneath the pressure. They stand up in it. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit here is wanting us to get, is that when we have on the full armor of God, we have every reason to stand up straight and be confident in God. When we're wearing this thing, when we put this thing on, nothing can shake you. It can't. No weapon formed against us will prosper as long as we're doing the things we're supposed to be doing. You see, what happens too often is we let our guard down. We disregard it or we get lazy or we, we just put it on hiatus, if you will. I mean, there's all sorts of different things that we do, and, and yet we wonder why the enemy gets in. But he can't shake you. He can't take you down unless you let him. And so let's look at this first piece of armor. Different translations call it different things, but ultimately what we notice as the belt of truth. And it's very interesting that Paul starts here. Because you think about it, the belt is usually the least interesting thing about somebody's wardrobe. It's not like you walk around and say, whew, I love that belt. Ladies who pay attention to wardrobe and fashion and hairdos and all that other kind of stuff, you hear them all the time, oh, those shoes are adorable. Oh, that dress, that's, 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 that's really nice. Or whatever. Very seldom he's like, oh, where did you get that belt? <laughs> you don't hear that. 
I mean, you might, but you really don't. Not very often. And it's the same here. Look at this Roman soldier's armor. I've got a picture up here for you to give, to give you an idea. Now, this was not taken at the time of, of these Roman soldiers, okay? This was, this was made after the fact. In fact, I think this was out of a, a movie or a play or something. I can't remember. But, but look at this armor. It's extremely ornate. That helmet, it's got that, that big fan going across the top of it, and it can go one or two ways. I mean, it, it just kind of depended. Um, but it's incredibly ornate. And the breastplate, which goes on both sides of it, is held together by these rings, and most of the time it's made out of copper or brass. And the more that they wore it, the shinier that it would get as, as the metal would kind of break down a little bit. It would really make it look nice. I mean, but it, it, it's, it's eye-grabbing. It, it catches your attention. And then look at what's on his legs. The greaves is what they call them. And these things cover his legs. goes all the way down to his shoes and, and whatnot. I mean, again, very ornate. I mean, it's definitely eye-catching. If a Roman soldier is walking down the road, you're going to notice. But Paul starts with the belt. Now look at this. Not really all that exciting. Now these belts look different at different times in in. One soldier may have a belt that looks one way and one has, looks another, but this is basically what it looks like. Kind of odd and really not anything that would grab your attention, right? And truthfully, the loin belt was the least attractive and the least noticeable and probably the most boring piece of armor that the soldier would wear. And so to us, we look at this and it seems very insignificant, but the truth is it's not. It is probably the most significant piece of of the whole armor that they wore. In fact, it's not probably the most significant. It is the most significant. The loin belt literally held everything together. So what do I mean by this? Is every piece of the soldier's armor hinged to this belt in one way or another. So you look at the shield that they carried. Now, very often it was kind of this oval-shaped shield. It wasn't usually a round one, and they're very heavy. I believe some say they weighed around 40 pounds. They were very heavy. They are very thick. This shield could be held up and it would attach to this belt and it would hold on there. It would take the weight off of the arm of the soldier and it would allow him to use it not just as a defensive weapon, but also as an offensive weapon on how it, because he could run into people and do different things like that. But it, it locked in to this belt. The breastplate itself, the one that we were talking about is, again, very ornate. It actually tucked into this belt and would lock into place so that way there would be no gap in it, if you will. I mean, so it was crucial that this belt was there because it was holding it together. The scabbard where the sword um, was held was obviously attached to the belt, and they'd also have a spear on their back, and again, that would attach into this belt. And so the armor would have fallen apart in the midst of a battle if it wasn't for this belt because this belt locked everything in place. And this is why to a Roman soldier that the loin belt was the most vital part of all the weaponry. Had to have it. No ifs, ands, or buts. He could have survived without some of the other stuff. Not as well, obviously. It's not like you want to go out and leave a piece off on, on purpose. But most importantly, he had to have this belt on. Because it kept everything where it should. And so let's look at the spiritual implications of this here. The majority of our spiritual armor is invisible. We don't see it. We don't literally put on a breastplate of righteousness. Or a helmet of salvation. We don't do that. These would be what we would call invisible weapons. These are things that have a spiritual significance in things and how we do it, but it's not anything physical. But, but when it comes to the belt of truth, that's different. You can hold the belt of truth. 
Some of you are holding it right now. The belt of truth is the Word of God, and it is the most important part of the armor. It's no coincidence that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this the way that he did. He started right in the middle with the belt, with the Word of God. If you ignore the Word, you ignore the most important piece of armor that we have. Crucial. Have to have it. We need this Word. Thank God that He has made it possible for us to have it. So how do I know that he's referencing the word here? Well, let's look at John 17, 17. It says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. When you see the word written here, the word word, there's two words that are often used for the word word. How's oh, that for a tongue twister? Uh, in Greek, that is, I should say. And the words are logos, or logos, however you want to say it, and rhema. Now, we have a simple understanding of this, and that's what I'm going to give you today, is the Logos is the written Word of God. What you're holding, the Logos. But Rhema is a more fresh or revealed Word from God. But these two words aren't necessarily interchangeable, and you can't separate them specifically because you can never have a Rhema Word from God that's not founded in the Logos written Word of God. It doesn't work that way. And these are actually, and don't just settle for such a simple understanding of it, because they actually go much beyond that. It's not as simple as just written and, and um, a, a revealed word, but it goes deeper than that. And, and you really should dig into that and under, have a better understanding of that. But for our principles today, this is where we're going to stop, because I don't want to spend all my time on this. And so you see these words used all throughout Scripture. So look at John 1.1. 1, 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Well, that word there is Logos. What we know is the written Word. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Jesus, no doubt about it. Now, some have tried to argue that this isn't talking about Jesus. Um, they are really using a bad exegesis on this, but that wouldn't be the first time and certainly won't be the last. This is referring to Jesus, and the word, word that is being used here over and over, all the way through this passage, is logos. As in the written Word of God, it's saying that Jesus, in our simple understanding, this would be the written Word of God. Now, we know that that's not possible because He's not written, per se. And that's why I'm saying we need to go deeper into this. We just don't have time today. But Jesus is the Word. Look at John 14, 6. What does He say? Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is claiming to be the truth. We see that Jesus is the Word. If Jesus is the Word and the Word is truth, then how do we put this back to the belt place being truth? Or, I mean, the belt being truth, I should say, because that is what Jesus said. He's claiming Jesus was the Word made flesh. He is the truth. John 14, 6 just told us that. These are powerful words. The Word of God is truth. We need to stop there for a second. The Word of God is truth. You need to get that inside of you. You need to understand that because there's a lot of things that will come against the Word of God and give you different ideas of this part may be true and that part's probably wrong or, or, or whatnot. It's not a proverbial buffet which we get to pick and choose which parts we like. The Word of God is truth. 
So what happens with us is too often, we set down our Bibles. And we don't dedicate the time necessary to it. We, get, we, we skip over passages, well, I've read that before. Or I'm really busy, I don't really have time to read today. Or, or pick any excuse that you want. But yet Paul said, put on the whole armor. And yet we set aside our, our loin belt of truth. We set aside our Bible. What happens when we do that is we begin to lose our sense of righteousness. Because the further away from the truth that we get, we lose the things that the truth says about us. We lose our sense of righteousness. We'll begin to lose our sense of peace, the peace that passes all understanding that only can come from God. We begin to feel the joy of our salvation begin to, de- to deplete. It goes away. Why? We're no longer grounded in truth. We cannot function as a believer without the Word of God having an active and central role in our life. That's the bottom line. If you remove the loin belt, it will only be a matter of time until you begin to fall to pieces spiritually. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And so we, being good Christians, trying to do our spiritual duty and doing the things that we think we should do, we often try to replace the loin belt with what seems like good things. With church gatherings, whether it be outside of a normal service or, or in a service. We go to Bible studies and, and we, we do things like that. Why? All for the effort that, that we're like, well, if I do these things, then maybe I don't need to read my Bible as much. Me reading the Bible to you is not as important as you reading the Bible for yourself. Or anybody else reading it to you. We have to be intentional about doing this. Or we, we try to replace it with, with praise and worship. We turn on some music at home, we come to church, we sing, and we worship God. Again, all good things, nothing wrong with any of these things. But this doesn't replace what the Word of God has in our life. Or with prayer. I know some people that pray a lot, but spend very little time in their Word. We have to have a balanced approach. Nothing wrong with prayer. We should pray. We pray often. But we have to have time in the Word. You can put whatever else you want in this category. Whether it be doing good deeds, feeding the homeless... Whatever. Those do not replace the loin belt of truth in your life. It can't. Or you will fall apart. These are the things that hold a believer together in regards to what we do. The Word of God is what holds the believer together. It's not the things that we do. It's the things that we are according to this truth. It's the Word that guides us. So now turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and starting in verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now this is a very familiar passage. If anybody in this room has never read this, I'd be shocked. But there are four things that Scripture is given for, and it says that is by the inspiration of God. We know that Scripture was written by men, but they were inspired men by God. But here's why Scripture is given. It's doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. So what do we do with these? Let's look at the first word, doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine, in a nutshell, is what God has done for us. What has God done for us? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not die, but have everlasting life. That's doctrine. It's Jesus taking our place. The Son of God coming to earth as a man and giving up His life for hours so that we could be made right with Him. That's doctrine. It's what God has done for us. The other ones, reproof. What is reproof? It's what others did wrong. 
There's all sorts of stories in the, in the Scriptures where you see something or someone did something wrong. And there are things there for us to learn from. Look at Adam and Eve. What did they do wrong? We all know the story. They didn't trust the Word of God. And they thought they could do it on their own. That's the bottom line. Look at King Saul. A man who was heralded as a great king, started off in great things, began to do the things that God told him not to do. He got away from the very truth. These are all there for our reproof. We see the things that they did wrong and we learn from them. What about the correction part? Those are the things that we are doing wrong. There are things that the Bible tells us to do and not to do. And so when we follow a theological pattern, if you will, it brings correction to us. So we stop doing the things we shouldn't be doing. We be holy because He is holy. And instruction in righteousness, these are the things that we do for God. What do we do for God? We go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, making disciples of all people. These are the things we do for God, and there's others. And they're important, and that's why Scripture is given. This is coming straight from the mouth of God. And then the last part of this is that He is thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this is important here, because once we get past the four things we just talked about, we quickly read through the next part. But the equipped there comes from the Greek word extardizo. E-X-A-R-T-I-D-Z-O. I have it up on the screen. And it means to completely outfit... Or fully supply. And this word was used in, in different writings to depict wagons or ships that were completely outfitted with gear. They had everything that they need. They were full. And what Paul is telling us is that the inspired word of God will equip us with the gear we need in order to walk in the power of God and to maintain our victorious position over the enemy. The word of God is the voice of God. It is the only source of replacement thinking. That's it. We're told to renew our mind, but renew our mind with what? With the Word of God. If Adam and Eve had done just that, we may be in different circumstances today. If we get our thinking right, we would have a lot less troubles in our lives because everything starts with the thought. The battlefield is in our mind and we are told that we must renew our mind. So in Matthew 4, you see this. This is Jesus. Jesus had just been fasting for 40 days. He's in a weak position physically. He's hungry. I'm sure he's tired. No doubt he's thirsty. 40 days, no food. Starting in verse 1 of Matthew 4, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days... And forty nights afterward, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What happened? The enemy came at him with a temptation, came at him with a thought to get him to do something that he wasn't supposed to do. And what did Jesus do? He replaced that thought with truth. And so, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God actually comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so, I was sitting here reading that this week, and I was like, you know, I need to go back and read this and see what it says exactly. And, and it's amazing what it's picking up on here. 
It says, Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, Every commandment which I have commanded you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So be humbled you, he humbled you, excuse me, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What's going on here is Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. And God is, is laying out why all of this happened. You need to keep my commands. You need to keep me at the forefront of everything. Because Israel was notorious for forgetting all the things that God did for them bringing them out of Egypt, leading them through the Red Sea, all the stuff that he did, making their sandals not wear out. And of course, the manna. And he's reminding them of all of this. What Israel was basically trying to do was make God their errand boy. They wanted to go to him when they needed something and ignore him when things were going okay. Sound like us at all? God wanted to see their faith through their trials. And this is what Jesus is teaching us here. We live by faith. Faith that is grounded in truth, and the truth is the Word of God. Faith in something does not make it true. A belief in something does not make it true. Being true makes it true. If you don't believe in gravity, that doesn't make gravity not true. If you don't believe in the sun, that doesn't make it not exist. It's the same here. We Christians constantly say, well, we live by faith. We live by faith. And that is true. We live by faith on the promises of God. But go read Hebrews 11. These people didn't have a blind faith. They had a faith in knowing that Yahweh, their God, was greater than all gods. And He was bigger and better and above and that He would do the things that He said He would do. And that's the faith that we have to have. You start with the faith of whether God exists or not. And you come to that knowledge, and then your faith grows into, will God do what He says He will do? I mean, if Genesis 1-1 is true, and you can accept it as truth, everything after that is at least possible. Down to the, will God heal me? We want to pick and choose the parts that we have faith in, but yet His Word is truth. And the only way we can get to know the truth of the Word is by spending time in it. It's crucial to our development as believers. Everybody says, I want to be more like God. Well, how are you going to do that unless you get to know more about Him? Get to know Him more. So let's look at this loin belt one more time. Now, I told you that the armor of the Roman soldier all hinged on this belt. The breastplate, the shield, the sword, even the helmet, because the helmet would lock into the, the breastplate. I mean, all of these different things would lock in there. But let's look at the spiritual side of this. If we were to draw a giant circle, we would put the word truth right in the middle, right in the center. Because truth is central to everything that we do. And then we come to the breastplate. What is breastplate? It's righteousness. It's the, the story of God making us right with Him out of no work of our own. And that righteousness is grounded in truth. And our faith, we have a faith in God, a belief that God is who He says He is. That He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And our faith is grounded in truth. And then we come to the sword. 
which is the Word of God, the Rhema Word of God. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. But that sword isn't just something that we fling around. That sword is grounded in truth. What about the helmet? What is the helmet? It's the helmet of salvation, our salvation that we have confidence in because that salvation is grounded in truth. And then you have shoes that comes from the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel, these greaves, these shoes that they were wore. Again, all lock in to truth. It's all hinged in truth. The truth. The truth that God is. What I find interesting is in the world we live today, people attempt to deny the existence of truth. They say there is no truth. There's no absolute truth. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. You know, you, you see these things which are completely idiotic, but yet this is the world that people are living in. Their worldview is that truth doesn't exist. And what they've done is they've cut the legs off of Christianity without specifically attacking Christianity. Because what do Christians claim to have? They claim to have the truth. What do all religions claim to have? They claim to have the truth. I watched a video recently um, Kind of heartbreaking, actually. It was a video of a young man who was uh, in an Islamic country. And he's a suicide bomber. And he's climbing in this tank-looking vehicle. I don't know exactly what it was. And he's got a bunch of people gathered around him. And it was almost like the pregame speech and, and whatnot. And he's sitting there crying. And this is all being translated. But he's crying because he knows he's getting ready to do what he has to do. And the people are there encouraged, like, and they're holding up one finger. It means there's no God other than Allah. And it's like, you're doing this for Allah. You're doing it for Him. This is good. And his response was, I'm afraid that I won't be successful in my mission for Allah. This man is willingly laying down his life because he feels like he's found the truth. Now, is the fact that we believe something different than him make ours true and his not true? No, of course not. Does him believing in it make his true? Of course not. The truth makes it true. It's heartbreaking to see somebody like that willingly lay down their life and we know what's going to happen. He's laying down his life for a false god. He's laying down his life in a way that he thinks he's doing the will of his God and yet the whole time... The God above all gods is standing there waiting for him. You see Jesus expand on this idea. John 8 and verse 21. John 8, 21. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, and I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? 
And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand what he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And he spoke these words. Many believed him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Powerful words by Jesus. What's He telling us? He says to them that if you believe in Me, that if you abide in My Word, what is His Word? His Word is the truth. That you are My disciples indeed. Something we should all strive to be as a disciple of Christ. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. That truth, what is that truth? That Jesus overcame the world. Comes from the Word. When they're confused by this because they can't figure out, what are you talking about? We're descendants of Abraham. We've never been in bondage. We've never been slaves. We've never even been prisoners. Making us free from what? They don't even realize that they are slaves to their sin. They've completely missed the point up to this. And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And as a slave, he does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides. And suddenly, Jesus is making it all clear that right now you're slaves and you don't even know it. You're in bondage and you don't even know it. But I'm going to change you from a slave. I'm going to make you a son. And then he says these very powerful words. Therefore, if the son makes you free, referring to himself, you shall be free indeed. The truth is, we're no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer in bondage to the enemy. Nothing can hold us back because the truth is in us. The truth is what sets us free. And the world can try to deny truth all they want. But the truth is inside of us. Now I want to tell you a story about a guy named Dan Barker. Now, some of you in here may have heard of him. Most of you probably have not, but I guarantee all of you have heard of his work. Dan Barker is the president of the Freedom From Religion Coalition. These are the guys that are constantly trying to take down the Ten Commandments out of courthouses and get, get them out of schools and you can't have a nativity scene, all those kinds of things. They're the ones that are going to battle all the time against the Christian world. And this man is proud of what he does. He thinks religion has been one of the most dangerous things that's ever happened to this world. But the sad part is, he didn't start here. You ever heard of Catherine Kuhlman? She was a great evangelist some time ago. I don't remember exactly when she was around. Had an incredible healing ministry. I mean, miracles were happening underneath her ministry. 
People were coming to Christ underneath her ministry. Very powerful. Go look her up. It'll bless you. But Dan Barker worked in her ministry. As a matter of fact, Dan Barker was one of her right-hand mans. And yet now he's fighting against the work that she did. What happened? We'll never know for sure. But he now denies the truth. There's a reason that three out of four high school students, when they leave for college, they, they leave the church. Is because we've not grounded them in truth. They've had an experiential faith where something happened or an emotional outcry. Do you know how many students I've taken through the years to different acquire the fire events and other things like that? And they come back all loving God. God's so great. I love God. He's awesome. And within a matter of a few weeks, they're right back where they were. That's no knock on acquire the fire. But we keep doing these things, just love Jesus, be behaved. That basically was the message. But we're not grounded in truth. To see the miracles that Dan would have seen, to still be able to deny truth, tells us that it's not the miracles that makes, convinces somebody. It's the acceptance in your heart that those things of God are truth. He has now convinced himself the things he saw were a fraud and nothing more than human emotion. And I'm sure some of it was. It's heartbreaking to see a man like that who could, and at one time did, great things for God, completely deny his existence. This is why truth is so powerful. This is why our acceptance of the Word of God is so powerful. This is why the more that we understand it, the more that we dig, the more that we know that is true in our hearts, the stronger that we become. When this word is truth to us, when we believe it, that's where faith is built. That's where the understanding of the things of God can take place. That's where we see the miracles happen. Because God said they would. And God said they can. And God said they should. When it tells me that I lay hands on the sick and they recover, if I don't believe that's going to happen, then it's never going to happen. But if I read that, that Jesus told me, that I lay, when I lay hands on the sick, they're going to get better. And I accept that as truth. They'll get better. You see, it's not God that's the problem. It's not the truth that is movable. The truth is immovable. Truth exists whether you accept it or not. I had a conversation with a young lady one time. I was doing a, uh, a, Sunday, or a Friday morning Bible study at a high school out there in, in Hastings. And I was talking on this very subject. And I honestly never believed in all my time that I would have to spend time explaining that truth is truth and it exists and it's real. I did a thing with a college group one time and I had to spend four weeks teaching on the existence of truth because I have to deprogram all the nonsense they're getting from their professors and from the world that they live in. Well, anyway, this young lady, we're sitting there discussing this and about truth and how there is truth and absolute truth exists. And she's like, well, she's like, I don't know that, you know, truth exists in the way that you're saying because truth changes all the time. You know, the more we do science, the more we, we get a better understanding of things that we see truth changing. And I said, no, 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 no. Truth never changed. Truth always was. 
our understanding of it changed. And that blew her mind because she'd never thought of it that way. You see, it's not truth that moves. It's our understanding of it. It's not God that has wavered from His promises. It's us not accepting the promises of God. And so what we need to understand is that His Word is true. And we can believe it for what it is. We take every promise that's there for us. We learn from every correction that's in there. The things that we need to correct. From the reproof that's in there. We, we gain our doctrine from there. We're instructed in how to live righteously in there. All of those things are there. And we can't do any of that if we don't know it, if we don't read it, if we don't spend time with it. We have to take it beyond this superficial Christianity where we just go to church on Sundays and we just love Jesus and be good. We have to become the image of God. One who portrays His image. One who portrays His being. One who portrays His work. One who portrays His love. Because His word is truth. He is truth. And all else out there that denies that, it's a lie. Let's pray.